Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway. America's racing showplace. You said that they have to have a qualification? Yes, they had to have the money. That one guy, you know, he says, I got one, I got one, I'm going to go get it for you. Two, three minutes later, I don't know, five maybe, I don't know what it was, bringing a, a, a vodka and orange juice, a screwdriver, they call it a screwdriver in the bar. <laughs> I got it, I got, I, I got it for you right here. <laughs> Went in the corner at Richmond, and Davey Allison went in the corner with me, and he beat me so bad, I just said, that dream is over. Let's go to the next dream. If I pull my britches down right now, you'll see the marks that I have from sitting in that car. That's okay. I believe you. I believe you. (laughs) Only if you pull your... The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace and a track that truly cares about NASCAR history. First things first this morning, Steve, Andrew Basso is one of several folks on Twitter who tweet out historic racing photos, and he came up with a truly significant photo this morning. Okay. Uh, Yeah, I saw it, Rick. Go ahead. Oh, Bobby Isaac won at Martinsville back in 1971. Now, the information that Andrew gave was that it was 50 years ago today, but in our discussions, we found out otherwise. So here's the deal. Bobby Isaac won at Martinsville 51 years ago today, which is interesting enough. But the photo features Bobby during his post-race interview in the press box. And right there you are, front and center, <laughs> the center of attention. Even then, 51 years ago today, Steve, Well, it kind of makes me feel ancient. 51 years ago, Rick, I was right out of college. That was the first NASCAR race I ever covered. And it was for the Martinsville Bulletin. You talk about somebody that had no idea 
of what was going on. I tell you what, if Dick Thompson, the PR man in Martinsville, had not taken me under his wing, I would not have known anything about what I saw that day. But I gained enough knowledge to write something very competent, I would say. But that was about it. It's been a long road ever since, Rick, and I've seen and done a lot of things in racing, but I will never forget that day. And I'll tell you what, the guy standing right in front of me is Al Pierce. Now, at the time, Al worked at Newport News. He spent many years working with Auto Week, and Al is still at it. He's still working races, especially the Daytona 500. He may be the last media link between the 70s and today. All right. So we got that out of the way. Also, last week, I got to drive the pace car at North Wilkesboro Speedway. Oh, no. Uh, Listen, Rick, uh, I've seen that video. You're stealing the pace car. That's exactly what it looks like. I wasn't the only one that said that. (laughs) I happened to be at the track. Cough, cough. And there sat the pace car right in front of the ticket office at the front gate. One thing led to another, and I wound up with the key fob, and off I went. And Steve, yes, I did lay tracks out of that place. Yes, sir. If a state trooper had seen you, they would have pulled you over. (laughs) How much did it cost you, Rick? I plead the fifth. (laughs) (laughs) I knew it. I knew it. We better go ahead and get this episode over so I can stay on the run. (laughs) (laughs) Steve, this week in our first segment, we are going to share the third and regrettably final installment of our interview with DK Ulrich. And this week he remembers the revolving door of drivers who once piloted his race cars, the young Davy Allison's impact on his decision to step away from the cockpit himself and the infamous screwdriver incident. At Riverside. (laughs) I think I know where this is headed. (laughs) Well, (laughs) we're not that kind of podcast, so we better move on. (laughs) Then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the May 29th, 1986 issue of Grand National Scene. Dale Earnhardt very patiently stalks Bill Elliott. There's a sentence you didn't hear very often. (laughs) Before Bill had to pit for fuel and late going during the Coca-Cola 600 at Charlotte, that allowed Dale to cruise to a two-second victory, which was his third of the season. And that year, he went on to win the second Winston Cup championship of his career. Richard Petty starts a car in that race that was owned by DK Ulrich after a crash during practice that left him and his car pretty used up. J.D. McDuffie's photo bio describes his tow truck as ultra high mileage. And Harry Gant makes an appearance in yet another How Needham flick, this one having to do with professional wrestling. And once more, Harry did not get an Oscar nomination for his performance. And neither did the movie. (laughs) (laughs) No. This week, we have new Patreon support from Vicky Holman Holland and PayPal help from Scott Perman and Rick Irwin. So Vicky and Scott and Rick, thank you. Well, without that kind of support from Patreon and PayPal and Venmo, it would not be possible to make this podcast happen. So listeners, if you can, 
please consider supporting us on a monthly basis via patreon.com slash the same vault podcast. Or if you would prefer to do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same vault podcast or venmo.com slash the same vault podcast. And also Steve, just as a reminder, this show is not affiliated in any way with American city business journals, owner of the same brand. Well, speaking of so many different drivers in your cars, and you mentioned the fact that you had 76 different drivers in your cars at, at one time or another, 1981, 18 different drivers. Well, that first drove. half was all one. All the way to June, it was Tim. So that's one, and I'm two of the 18. Then the rest of the time, you know, we just made deals, and they, they knew, you know, whoever was out there looking for a ride knew that they could, they could, I could get them in a car. And we did. We just kept them coming. Did you have any kind of qualification to allow somebody in your car? Absolutely. Or did could somebody just come up to you and give you how X number of dollars and say, I want your car? So you're doing both things. Because right? I'm saying that you said that they have to have a qualification. Yes, they had to have the money. <laughs> I even took Lake Speed. It was before that, before that time, I think. I took Lake Speed in there when he he called me up. I can't remember the year this was. Whenever he started, he said he wanted to, to have a ride, you know. And I said, what have you done? He said, well, I was champion in the go-karts. And he said all the stuff that meant nothing, okay. I mean, I knew he, he knows competition and all that. And then I asked him what his name was. He said Lake Speed. And I said, all right, dude. You show me proof, that <laughs> and he'll tell you this. You, and he brought his, his uh, passport in that said Lake Chambers Speed, said right on it. I, I told him, if you do that, and we'll make this work. <laughs> he went out, and, and we were at Atlanta. And, you know, at that time, you didn't have to have any qualifications. NASCAR didn't require any. If you had a car and you could pass inspection, you could race. And he went out and trying to qualify he came around on the second lap. Now, he didn't know anything about tires that on the first lap they were quicker than they were in the second. He didn't know any much about that. He comes around the second lap. He's already half-assed hung out when he comes over there. And then he turns right left and goes right down and smacks the inside wall, turn around and hit the outside wall, and destroyed the car. You know? And that was his first attempt to make a race. First time with me and first time he actually had a, had a cup car. So we got some stories about those guys, too. So a couple of weeks ago, I found the Riverside screwdriver story in an old issue of Grand National Scene, uh-huh. and we talked about it here on the show. I may like to read that edition or that okay. writing because I don't I don't remember that ever being written. Yeah, you know, yeah, I yeah. Uh, you, you talked things. about Riverside, my home track. And, yeah, and I'm I did a lot of stuff over there to get in a race. I did a lot of stuff during it, whatever I had to do, you know. But that time. Uh, it was the first lap, I think, of the race, the first time through turn six that the motor just quit. And I just coasted over by what was turn seven and all the way almost into, you know, like right before the straightaway. And I pulled off over and we went all the way to the fence because I didn't know when they were going to come for me. So you just wanted to fix the car yourself. Well, I had no option. You know, I'm yeah. sitting there yeah. in the car and and it's it's not it's not like it's, 
it'll turn over, you know, if you hit the starter, but it just, nothing happened. And I know it's going to be one of two things. You know, it's going to be some electrical issue or it's going to be a, in, in, internal like a camshaft or a timing chain or something like that. And the only way to find out what it is, if it's fixable, you know, maybe I can fix it. So I got out of the car in my suit, hat, the whole works, you know, f- people with the fence right here, and then the people are, are hey, look at, look at, I say hello to them, you know, and I got underneath the, the car, or not underneath the hood, and I said, you know, if I can get the distributor cap off, I can touch the starter, and it's either going to turn or it isn't, okay? If it doesn't turn, there's something wrong inside the engine. If it turns, it's going to be external. It's going to be, it's going to be something, probably the you know, you know, wiring or some kind of deal that would, uh, that would make it happen. It's all simple. It's all you got to do. I mean, I built all the engines for the cars, so I know everything about them. But, you know, on that particular year with that particular distributor, you have to have a screwdriver to get it off. To, and I'm sitting there with my driving suit, and I don't keep any tools in the car. <laughs> <laughs> But I had to, I had to do something, and I said, well, maybe, maybe somebody there's the, uh, one of these fans will have that, and I just, I just went over and asked him. I'm trying to hurry, you know, as much as I can, and I said, I need a, I need a screwdriver. Does anybody, anybody, you guys have a screwdriver? And they, they looked at each other, you know, and, and I don't know whether their car was 100 miles away or what it was or anything, but that, that one guy, you know, he says, he said, I, I, I got one, I got one. I'm gonna go get it for you, okay? And and he took off. And I said, well, okay. When he goes over to the camper, I didn't know he was a camper at the time, but he comes back two or three minutes later, I don't know, five maybe, I don't know what it was, bringing a, a, a vodka and orange juice, a screwdriver, they call it a screwdriver in the bar. <laughs> I got it. I got, I, I got it for you right here. <laughs> He's holding it over the fence, and I'm looking at it, and I'm going, that's a screwdriver, isn't it? <laughs> and I said, let me have that. <laughs> How long is it going to take to ever get a real screwdriver? Am I going to be able to fix it when the time comes? Yeah. Are they going to come and get me? You know, I didn't have – I had all these question marks up there. And then I said, I can't really – yes, I can. I drank the screwdriver. <laughs> and he said, he said to me, he says, you, you want another one? And I said, hang on a minute. I just crawled over the fence, took my helmet off, and, and went to his camper with him. And he made me another, she made me another straight. I had the daughter was in the, in the camper, you know, and she was all, she was cool that the race driver was actually in their camper, you know, and talking to her and all that and, and um, had a drink with her and, and got any further questions? <laughs> I'm almost afraid to ask. <laughs> might be a good idea, Rick. <laughs> that was the best DNF I ever had. <laughs> Okay. All right. Um, now then. <laughs> okay. Let's see. Um, I, I may not be able to go to church this week. <laughs> I may need to go to church this week. Maybe. I, don't know. <laughs> I, I try to keep it clean. I really do. <laughs> I could have went into detail. With that. Well, okay. Not all right. Necessary. We don't need any detail. Uh, don't need any detail on that one. We'll just leave that one to I the imagination. Name, but I'm sure she remembers. <laughs> Okay. All right. Um, you not take a break. You need to take a break. No, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Um, Richard Petty. Yeah. You mentioned him earlier. He crashed during practice at Charlotte, 1986, yep. and he winds up in your car. Yep. What kind of high level negotiations took place to make that happen? It was simple. I know Dale Inman, and and he knows that I've been known to have other drivers in my car at times, and I had qualified the car for the race myself. 
I was in, and I wasn't running for points that year, and and I could bail out at any time, or I couldn't. And he come, just he came and asked me, "Is there something we can do here?" You know, and I just I told him, I said, "I'd be happy to help." You know, I, he was trying to keep a string of races right. together, and he was going for a thousand, and he was at nine ninety or something, or I don't know what it was, but but. Um, and I told him I'd be happy to help, you know, and and he said, well, what what can we do for you? You know, he was thinking, I want to, you know, a hundred grand would be good. <laughs> Never talked about money. We just said, uh, he he said, we're going to, I got a motor here. Put that in your car. We got tires. We'll give you the tires. And and Richard, you're going to start the race. He's probably going to bail out because he's still hurting from this wreck. And I said, well, I'll be ready to jump in when he gets out. And we just left it at that, you know, but I could keep his motor and his tires for the whole day. And it was good enough for me. And we did that, and uh, Dale did, and Richard did, and we did, and that was that. So that's the, the only time known to man that Richard drove a car owned by somebody else, I think, in NASCAR. I think, you know, they had names on there for a while. Like he had he had some kind of deal with um, Jim Stacy, I think, at some time. He drove, he drove for Mike Curb for a couple of years. That's not Mike Curb's car. Really? Okay. He, no, he had, he was the owner. He was he was listed as the owner, you know, and of some team. I don't know what I don't know what team that was, but it wasn't. I don't I don't know the details. Right. And maybe maybe I'm not the only car that he's driven, but to, to my knowledge, that is. And, yeah. And, hey, Buddy Baker once told me he says, "Never let the truth get in the way of a good, good story." story. <laughs> That's a journalist <laughs> credo right number my, one. <laughs> he, he told me that right in my ear. <laughs> You ran seven races in 1987 and pretty much stepped out of the car from that point forward. I think you ran a couple of one-offs for somebody. What went into that decision? Was it just time to concentrate on business? I or? went in the corner at Richmond, Virginia, and Davey Allison went in the corner with me, and he beat me so bad. I just said, that's when I decided that, you know, I just, that dream is over, Yeah. Know? Let's go to the next dream. And and at that time, I said, I said, I want to build this into a team that can win, and have to generate money, and have to. If I have a, a name guy in the car, you know, uh, you, you can. If I had, and that's when I think Ernie came along after that, and and we put a deal together with him and Kroger, and those kind of things. I was trying to make a team out of it that was good. And in our last year, we sat on a pole in Atlanta, in uh, some year I don't know what it was with. Uh, um, Greg Sachs was a driver. But, you know, we are trying to build that kind of a team up where right. we could be a competitive in a race. And we led that race for a long time and and ran in the top. I, I, the only reason he didn't lead anymore is I told Sachs, I said, you, I don't want you any further up than fifth. <laughs> Back <laughs> yeah. up. Yeah. Back up, dude, and take it easy in the corners because you're going to – we had Hoosier tires at that time. And I said, he, Sachs is a great guy. All right, One of my favorite – individuals that I worked with during the drivers that I worked with during this time but he did not have any idea how to manage tires he's he had one thing one two two speeds stop and on the mat (laughs) (laughs) he didn't know anything else yeah and then and we hit the wall so many times in that year uh and ran good though we ran good a lot of places and we we were right in the top five all day until we wrecked at Atlanta and then we also, when we went to the Winston in Charlotte, uh, we qualified faster than anybody else had ever qualified in our qualifying lap. We were 100 and, I don't know what it was, 
that time, 180 or something like that. It was a more, more really fast, but it was because of the tires and it was because sacks on a mat. <laughs> <laughs> I read a story one time where you said that Ernie Irvin was pretty much the your favorite driver that you had worked with. Why was that? He would, um, well, I mean, what happened all those years before when he was telling me he wanted to drive a car, and I never did because we he didn't have any money or anything. It was just, but and then when I put him in at Martinsville that first time, and he got in the race immediately, you know, and I've been struggling all week myself as a driver, and I could see myself getting older all the time, you know, and, and your eyesight changes, your, your reflex change, and I went in that corner with Davey Allison that time, and I said, to hell with this. I'm going to do something else. I'm going to, all right, so at, when Ernie got in the car and did that, it was all for nothing. It was just he helped me, I helped him, and we just, well, in the race itself, which nobody knows, there's something went wrong with the um, uh, the exhaust system, and a spring had broken in the seat. We had different seats at that time. A spring had broken in the seat and went down to the floorboard, and this spring was like a conductor of heat from the floorboard up into the seat itself, oh. which went into all those other springs that were in the seat. And Ernie had never drove a long race or anything like that. As I said, I think he drove something for Mark Reno, but I don't remember remember what that was. But he said, to, just tell me on the radio, he said, man, my ass is burning. And I said, what, what do you mean, you know? And he said, I feel like I'm on fire. My butt feels like I'm on fire in here, you know? And, and I said, come on, man. It's only a hundred laps into this race, you know. Yeah, yeah. And he goes, "No, nah, I'm just I'm tired." So he come in on the next pit stop, and we poured water down in the <sighs> seat, and and a steam came up. <laughs> we poured the water. Oh my god! Steam came up, and he went another fifty laps, and he said, "I got to get out. I can't do this." And so I said, "Dude, man up! Come on, man, you can do it." You know. And he stops. He gets out. I get in, and twenty five laps down the road, my ass is burning. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I don't know yeah. what it is at yeah. that time. Yeah. I don't. But, man, I'm around a seat like this. I took my gloves off and put one glove under each cheek to try to protect it from the heat. This is while I'm driving, you know, yeah. doing the whole time. And I stayed like that for a little while, and then I had to put the hose in the car after I stopped again. I finished the race. But if I pull my britches down right now, you'll see the marks that I have from sitting in that car. That's okay. I believe you. Okay. I believe you. <laughs> Only if you pull your... <laughs> We're good. We're good. <laughs> End of that story. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, you know, we we just became uh, friends, and and I told him that we were, we were going to try to put something together, which I had a man from um, Kroger that was talking to me about it, and we we put it all together, and then signed him up for three years, and he drove the first year for me. I mean, Swerving Irvin isn't anything to what he really was. He wrecked everything. <laughs> Until <clears throat> somewhere before Charlotte that year, which is, you know, like 10 races into the season or whatever it is, I put him in the, in the body shop, and I told him he's going to fix this car. And we even had a, uh, you know, like a dog dish that, that we put Ernie on the dog dish. We painted Ernie on there and put it down on the floor by where he had to hang up his uniform or whatever <laughs> he did in the garage. And I said, that's for you, buddy. <laughs> and we got through it all and, yeah. and got got to run him pretty good we led some races and 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 people started looking at him uh maybe in in that first year and he ran the second year with me and then somewhere and i don't know what the exact dates were or anything but somewhere in there uh he had a 
I think he had a ride set up with Junie Dunleavy or something at that time. I think that's the next place he went to. And he just told me, and as, as a friend, he said, he said, I need to move. I need to move on so I can win races. And he said, I'll stay right with you until the end of the contract. But I need to, I, I, want, I would like to do something a little different. And, and so I, I let him go. And that was, that's why I said we're favorite, because he came to me first and he said, I'll yeah. stay right here. I'll stay right here with you. I got you all the way. And I'm going, I don't know if I got enough cars. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, you know, that was, we, 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 we got through it. And, and he always learned from me what to do on the big tracks and how to conduct himself. And uh, it was just a good relationship. Was he fast? Yeah, he was, he was fast. Faster than my cars. And I could see that happening. He, he had, at Bristol, he led for I don't know how many laps. Uh, and then something happened. He gets in a pits, and we're like two. 26 second pit stop. Yeah. Just, we just didn't have enough equipment for him. And I, that's why I wanted to let him go, let him go. I thought Junior would be a good guy to go to. And he did. And that was that. You stayed in the sport through the 1995 season. Was there any one thing that happened to cause you to walk away or was it just Tom? Uh, I'd been, you know, like we talked about car owners and, and things, I was with Ray DeWitt, and he had some money, and I got with him, and then I got with Ted Musgrave and put him in a car. And then doing that, it was a very difficult transition, not a transition, but difficult for me to work with Ray and his wife, Diane. And it just was a difficult matter, you know. And uh, Was that maybe because you had been in charge all those years? I think so. Yeah. And I, I had much more knowledge of, of the ins and outs of racing and what to do when and so forth. But then uh, Mrs. DeWitt had a better idea for me most of the time. And not to say anything bad about it, it just, it just didn't sit good with me. And I said, how can I fix this? And the way to fix it was to, uh, I bought them out. And um, when I say I bought them out, I, they took everything. And it's like I sold the team in uh, uh, 19... Get the dates for stuff here. Ernie was there for 87, 88, and then Ted from 90, 91, maybe, and then and that maybe 92, I think Ted was still driving. And, and, then, uh, and then I just said, you know, I've done what I've done, and I had a great time. I had the best time of anybody the whole time. I'd see Richard Petty win a race. Yeah, man, that's over quick. I'm still having fun. <laughs> I had fun all through the week, all yeah. the time. You know, I just had a good time doing these things. And and if I told you all the stories, you wouldn't be able to yet turn all this stuff off before I could tell you the stories that we that happened during that time. But it was good. And then we, at that time, I just said, I'm going to do it. And so in, in 1995, I sold them to uh, Doug Bobble, who was the Jasper guy. And then it came time for Daytona. And I was at home, and I had never, I always been to Daytona in the last 25 years. No matter what, I was always in Daytona. And I said, I'm going to go back down there. And I go back, I have a home in Daytona. And I went over there, and I had to talk, I um, forget who the guy was, the NASCAR guy. I had to talk him to let me have a, a, a real license, even though I didn't have a car. At I said, I've been here 25 years, dude. You guys, and they did. They gave me a, uh, stuff so I could get into the races. I went in there. First thing I remember is I don't have a tire bill. 
<laughs> that was the first thing. Yeah. That was yeah. always big. You know? Yeah. Or, or shuffling tires around or whatever I had to. I don't have to do that. You know, I don't have to make the race. I don't care who wins on Thursday or who does anything like that. And then I said, well, what am I going to do? So I took a, a spray can, white paint, and borrowed it from somebody. And I went over by the NASCAR trailer, and I put a circle on the ground, right? white paint. I gave it back to him, and I went over, and I stood in that circle. <laughs> for the longest time, you know. <laughs> Dick May came over and said, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, I need a place to be, so this is it right <laughs> And I spent the whole day, and it's the only day I went there. I went the first day, and they were they were just getting ready to qualify. I don't think they were going to do anything that day. They are just going through inspection and doing it. I went to see everybody, and, and uh, I don't know how many people asked me that. You know, what are you doing now? I mean, you know, like now I wasn't racing. What are you doing now? And I said, I'm standing right here. This is my spot. <laughs> and I went out of there, and I never came back for, um, I don't know, several years. I went... Uh, to my uh, my island in the Bahamas, I have a hotel down there that I, through saving those two hundred dollars every now and then, made enough to to get started down there. And that's another whole story of of uh, the entrepreneurial matter where I wound up owning this hotel, airstrip, sixty four acres of land with nothing in it. I had no money in it at all of my own. Whatever the whatever was made in the Bahamas stayed in the Bahamas, and we spent that on renovating the hotel. I built a beautiful uh, 7,500 square foot house on the beach, and got it all up to a point. And then uh, and then I had a guy that just had to own it. You know, he had to own it. I didn't want to sell it. I wanted to live there the rest of my life. But that story. There's more to that, but that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> When we talked the other day, it does seem like you're still as busy as you've ever been. What's a normal week like for you these days? Well, it, it depends on the week, of course, you know, and, and, and I've got a home in, in Florida in Daytona Beach. You know, I have a, a, a property in the Bahamas. I'm no longer, I sold the hotel. I no longer have that. And I have some trucks that haul cars from the port of Jacksonville to the dealerships, brand new cars, Toyotas, Lexus to the dealerships in the southeast. And so I have to keep up with that. I don't I can drive the trucks, but I don't. I mean, I don't wanna I don't wanna load them, I'll say which is <laughs> and, and then I just keep up with that business Monday and Tuesday because payroll's on Tuesday and, and I just gotta keep track of everything and, and right now I'm, I have to uh, have to get uh, twenty twenty three tags for the trucks all by September somewhere, you know. So I have to deal with that. And I deal with that business couple hours a day or a couple days a week maybe I don't know what it is. depends on what depends on the week depends on what's happening and then I like to lay in the sun I like to uh, uh, we have a little beer joint there called downwind restaurant at Spruce Creek in Florida Spruce Creek is the where they have the the you know the air we can, we can land our airplane there put it in your hangar it's hooked to your house and so it makes it nice to to do to go where you want to go and do that and and just pretty much uh uh, start new things that that I did. A, well, for example, during my time, I had a uh, boot that I had uh, made an agreement with Amazon uh, Videos to do some work with them. And I I did several things with the movie people in Hollywood. I know some people there from, I, I had something to do with all those all the movies that were made with NASCAR over time. I supplied cars for them. I did something. They knew I could um, pretty well make anything happen. And there was a, 
in April of this year, maybe uh, March to begin with. They're they're making a movie in uh, uh, Finland, Helsinki. They were making a movie uh, about I don't know hot cops and robbers or I don't know what it yeah. was, but they were making this movie and a chase movie or whatever it is. And they were they were using a Russian airplane that belonged to the Russian army, and they had used it in one set of series, and then they were going to use it in the finishing set of the series where where they run down the runway in Helsinki and and open the back and this thing you know they and the guys that were getting away drive up in the <laughs> as the thing's riding along you know and and then all that set up with the uh, Russian army to use their airplane. And then, if you remember, there were uh, two troop, two Russian troop carrier airplanes that were shot down by the Ukraine people, and they, that was one of their airplanes that they were going to use, and now they don't have one, right? And I'd got some airplanes for them before and some boots and whatever they needed, so they called me and said, what can we do here, you know? And like everything else, it was like, I can do it. Whatever you need, I, I'm, the, I'm your guy, you know? And I ain't where I'm going to find a Russian airplane, I don't know. <laughs> but they said we need to shoot in like three or four days or something. It was real quick, and 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 so I called my my friend the devil, who is a um, that's what we call him. His airplane number is six 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 Mike Whiskey. So we just, <laughs> okay, we just call him the devil. Uh, he answers to that, and he's probably he will, probably will never listen to this, but someone will hear of it and tell him to listen to it. But uh, he knows everything in Europe. He's he's from Germany. And he knows everything going on there, and there, uh, a lot of stuff in aviation. I said, "Dude, I need a Russian airplane tonight." <laughs> tonight. <laughs> yeah. And he said, "Not tonight." And I said, uh, "No, no, I need it. I don't need to have it tonight. I need to have an agreement on it." And so he goes to work, and we we found that there was a Russian airplane coming to uh, Frankfurt. Uh, it was a U.S. company, but they were going to Frankfurt, and then they were going to. Uh, they, had, they had freight going into uh, Kiev in in um, in Ukraine. This is when the heat of the war was going on right. over there. And so we hijacked that or talked to them about it, you know, and said we, we're going to take it out of, when you get done with that, we're going to take it out of Frankfurt, we're going to take it up to Helsinki, and then do a f- film shot for a couple of days, and you can have it back. And we made an agreement. Right? And in a couple of days, I had that worked out, and I flew to Frankfurt, the plane comes in, Goes to uh, um, Kiev, comes back, and I got in a plane with a helmet and and uh, you know military clothes in a in a plane. It was it could look like a military plane. They were dressed like that, so I, they didn't want me to look like a like a. I had passport and everything in order, and they actually needed another crewman on the plane, so I became that crewman. We flew up the border of uh, Ukraine and Russia. You can't know. United States and Ukraine. We're in Ukraine. We're in the United, not the United States, Germany. And you, I, I get confused sometimes. But you know, I'm old. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I'm nearly 80 years old. You know, and so I, yeah. my memory, I understand, isn't that good anymore. And I probably couldn't turn left in a race car very good. <laughs> anyway, we we're, we're flying up to the the border. And you see the bombs going off over on the right. You know, and I said, what are we doing here? You know, and and then uh, got got to uh, Helsinki. And you look on the map, you'll see it's pretty much up the border, and then and then over across a little water, and then and then over there, and dropped the plane off, gave him the gave him the keys, so to speak, you know. And they had a pilot and crew all stayed with the plane, and they finished their they finished their thing up. And then I get 
my agreement with them was pretty simple, that I wanted the best hotels and the best seats in the airplane in my whole trip. You know, like that's what, I mean, my seat in the, in the airplane, the Russian airplane was, uh, yeah. <laughs> wasn't that good. I can't imagine it being very good. <laughs> but it was fun to do. Yeah. And, and uh, my agreement with them for myself was I, I agreed to do the deal for $225,000. But that was my fee. It didn't buy the airplane. It didn't get anything. But, you know, I've got to risk, risk my life over here, and i got to do this. And I, when I deliver, they know when I deliver, I'm there with it. They, everything I've ever done with them in the past. You know how the movies are. They, they got a crude waiting there with cameras and people, 42 people waiting there. And if for one day, that cost them, it cost them that easily, that $200,000 if they were one day late. And I'm on time, and I'll be there, and I, I see that they do it, and I get out of there. And then um, flew back to New York, went to um, Heathrow in London, London, and then from there to New York. And then we got off the plane in New York and met with the, with the money people. And we went to the hotel, and they gave me the money in cash. I didn't really get that in cash, just in case the IRS is looking here. <laughs> I just they they gave me a, a, a we 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 just shook hands and left. <laughs> but we did that, and so I do those kind of things. Uh, we we did a with my boat. We did a series of uh, called Below Deck that we went to, to took my boat. I fl- I took it. That's your boat. Yeah, this is in uh, in. Going to be like seventeen, maybe two thousand seventeen. Yeah. Took the boat down there and worked for them for two, six weeks. And they paid me a fee for that, and and just hey, it was fun. You know, we had a great time down there, and went to all the islands, and and you know, with them I had to disappear. You know, I'm, I'm not the boat that they're working with. I was the crew. Uh, I, I fed the crew, and I had a team of people on there, including a, a you know a cook and some other all you know Bahamian. And they're all different kind of people that were yeah. on there that I knew. I put them on a the boat and paid them a fee, and, and they paid me a fee for doing that. Uh, I happened to sink the boat during that time, too, but there <laughs> <laughs> it goes sometimes. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> no, it, was, it was a simple deal, you know, but it, it, it's, the boat was sunk to the bottom. Beautiful boat, you know, 80 feet. What happened? I was backing into the... The place we were, every night we'd moor the boat somewhere, you know, and this night we were at uh, uh, Louis, something Louis, King Louis or something like that, Marina in, uh, I can't even remember where it was at, it's in the, I can't remember what, what island it was, but we were in there and, and they, they do med, med mooring there. If you know what med mooring is, that's like they're in a circle, you hook the two buoys out here and back the boat in and hook it to the thing over here, and then you get off the back of the boat into the dock and do whatever you're doing. But you had to back between these boats, and I'm telling you, when we when you go between them, you put your fenders out, and I'm a Coast Guard captain, by the way, with 200, up to 200 tons, and you put the, 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 the fenders out, and they, it's squashing fenders on each side. That's how tight it is going into where we were parking. And when I backed in, uh, there, was a, there was a mooring out here that I was gonna tie up to eventually, but there was a mooring out there and a boat tied to it over here and then a mooring over here with that boat tied over here. I had to back between the moorings, which is nothing, and just get it organized and then go straight back. You're only doing, you're not even doing one knot. You know, right. You're just barely moving. But I backed up close to this one over here and then pushed forward. I'm up in a 
I'm three stories up in the in the boat, you know, looking at everything, and I, I pushed the throttle forward, and the boat went backward. Don't happen, you know, but it did. Shut everything down and went under the boat. The guy that went under, he said, looks all right to me down here, you know, but he just forgot to look where we were. The the props were tied up in a in a painter line that was laying by that buoy somewhere. Somehow, I didn't hit the buoy, but uh, it got around the prop, and the prop was going that way, and even in reverse. I mean, it was it was going this direction, and and when when the line tightened up, it pulled the boat back, even though it was trying to go forward, and that's it. That's all that happened. And we looked at it, and, and after I'm like in, I freaked out, you know, and I, and I look and I'm looking at the looking at the boat, talking to Cappy, my man that was there. Something didn't look right, you know, and it was listing to one side or the other. And then Cappy opened the, the back lazarette, looked down in there, and all you could see was water. And my cabin is right in front of that, just forward of that. And I ran, looked in there, and the cabin was, the bed was underwater, and everything was waist deep in the cabin. And my football or whatever you want to, I call my my uh, my briefcase a football, you know, because I got got to keep it there. It was underwater, and it had passports, money, uh, papers for the boat, and everything. So, so uh, my wife was with me, and she dove under the water to find that, and got it out. And we and we got out of the basement of the boat, or you know, out of the bilge, and tried everything, but it just kept sinking. And we even had to get the um, the boat, the uh, emergency boat that they had at the marina with the su the big suction thing for to get the water out. It didn't work. They couldn't get it to work, and it just kept going down and down and down. Pretty soon we had to get off, and we started. Uh, the locals went inside the boat for us and just grabbed everything they could and took it out. Everything unhooked. The, I mean, they had toolboxes. They had uh, they unhooked the TVs, whatever whatever was down there. They got it, threw it out of their boat. Piled it all up on a pier down the road, and the boat went to the bottom. And that that was all that was all there was to the Queen, Silver Queen, she was called. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. This is one of the most mind-boggling stats that we have ever shared on the Scene Vault podcast. In 1981, 18 different drivers split time behind the wheels of cars owned by DKR. 18, Steve. That is a big handful. <laughs> <laughs> Those competitors included Rick Baldwin, Joe Boer, Elliot Forbes Robinson, Tommy Gale, Cecil Gordon, Terry Herman, Kevin Houseby, Don Hume, Slick Johnson, Rick Noop, Al Laquasto, <laughs> Dace Whitaker, if you're out there and listening, Al Laquasto, <laughs> sponsored by Schaefer Beer, drove DK's car in 1981, Sterling Marlin, Dick May, Bob McElwee, Tim Richmond, Ronnie Thomas, and DK Ulrich himself. And happy, sneezy, grumpy, dopey. <laughs> <laughs> of those drivers who got the best finish my guess would be nah i won't even guess that i i know what i think i think it's probably dk 
you would be correct. Ah, how about that? That would be DK Ulrich, who finished fourth in that just absolutely crazily bizarre race at Dover, won by Jody Ridley, where everybody and his brother seemed to keep falling out of the race before Jody won. And Steve, that was the best finish of DK Ulrich's driving career. That was that, his only top five, right? Yes, yes sir. Well, he just survived up there at Dover, where a lot of those drivers didn't. What an unusual Dover race. But that was a big win for Jody Ridley, driving for Junie Donlevy at the time. And, of course, it was a big race for DK as well. Well, he talked about DK's screwdriver incident at Riverside back in episode 207 when it was the subject of a story in the June 19th, 1980 issue of Grand National Scene. DK was sure that nobody had ever heard that story before, but right there it is on page four of that issue. However, this account in Grand National Scene evidently left out a few details. Let's just call them details. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't you tell us? DK asked if anybody had a screwdriver. He's going to fix the car and get it back into competition. And according to what he said, one of the people standing there proceeds to go to his camper and comes back with a vodka and orange juice, which is called, <laughs> apparently, in mixology terminology, a screwdriver. Oh, yeah, I know what it is. And you know what a Phillips screwdriver is? I'm afraid to ask. Vodka and milk of magnesia. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll take your word for it. DK decided right then and there that nobody's coming to get him. He takes the screwdriver, and he drinks it. He proceeds to crawl over the fence, goes back to the camper with the guy whose daughter is there. Uh Uh-oh, you don't mean. All we probably need to say is that DK claimed that it wound up being the best DNF he ever had. Well, of that, I have no doubt. (laughs) Let's move on fast. (laughs) (laughs) DK ran a handful of races in 1987 and then pretty much hung up his helmet after that, with the exception of a couple of one-off deals. And DK said that Davey Allison beat him so badly through a corner at Richmond that he decided then and there that his dream of driving a race car was over and that it was time to let go of that dream and go chase another one. I can't help but wonder how many competitors in the sport have such a specific moment that they can point to and say, yeah, it's time to hang it up. Or if that's something that develops over time, obviously it's different for different people. Sure. But I think DK was probably one of the lucky ones because he had something to fall back on. He could still own a race team. And that's something that he had been doing for such a long time that it wasn't all that much of a stretch because he had been having so many different drivers driving his race cars for so long. He was already used to not driving every race. So the adjustment probably wasn't as big. I agree, Rick. I think that DK realized it wasn't much fun going out there on the track and getting your brains beat out every week. I think he saw that when Davey Allison so quickly dispatched him up there in Richmond. But I do believe that retirement comes over time. I think it is different for every driver. But if you notice, unless there is some kind of traumatic incident, most of them 
try to hang on as long as they can. And they've told me over the years that there are two primary reasons they have for retiring. Number one, there's no fun anymore. And number two, I need to stop this because I can do something better with my time. And I'll say one last thing about retirement. I think years ago, drivers hung on longer than they do today. Some of those drivers race well into their 50s. Richard Petty is one of them. But today, we have seen top-flight superstars quit the sport when they're in their early 40s or even late 30s. And, you know, among them are Jeff Gordon and Jimmy Johnson, Dale Leonard Jr. I think the reason they retire is because they do have something better in their future and go and pursue that. Of all the drivers that DK worked with over the years, a couple seemed to stand out as his favorites. Greg Sachs and Ernie Irvin. And that right there probably tells you pretty much everything you need to know (laughs) about DK's mindset (laughs) when it came to drivers. DK said that Greg had no clue how to manage tires because he only knew two speeds. Stop and on the mat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, Greg Zex came from a modified background. He was a top flight modified driver and most modified races, not that long and don't really have much to do with tire management. In order to win those races, you have to go flat out. And that's exactly what Greg did. And Ernie Irvin. Yeah. That was pretty much his driving style too. (laughs) As we have recounted many times in the past. Ernie made the second start of his Winston cup career for DK at Martinsville. And somehow something happened and heat from the floor pan was being conducted up into the seat. Now, how that happened, I'm not sure, but heat was actually being conducted up into the seat. So it was basically frying Ernie's backside. He gets on the radio and he tells DK, it's hot. I need to get out. And DK thinks that it's just because Ernie isn't used to running a longer race. And so DK tells Ernie Irvin to man up and get after it. I'm hot. Suck it up. I'm hot. Suck it up. (laughs) I'm hot. (laughs) Suck it up. They pour water down his back. And DK said that the steam actually came up. So now he's not just getting seared. He's also getting boiled. Finally, Ernie comes in, gets out. DK takes over. And DK very quickly discovers that Ernie wasn't exaggerating in the least because that seat was all but on fire. DK finished the race, but not before taking his gloves off and stuffing them down between his butt and the seat. And from what he said, I wasn't going to check for proof. He offered. (laughs) (laughs) He still has scars on his butt from what happened that day. Well, what happened that day was a good old-fashioned Boston butt roast. I'm surprised. I'm surprised that Ernie could stick it out as long as he could. There is a photo of Ernie in the next week's Grand National scene, and that poor guy looked like two weeks worth (laughs) of wash. (laughs) All that, Steve, for a 15th place finish, 29 laps down to race winner Darrell Waltrip after that crazy last lap scramble with Dale Earnhardt and Terry Levant. 15th place. And they had to pay that kind of price for it. 
15 place for a seared penny. Doesn't seem logical to me, <laughs> but you do what you got to do. After working with Ray and Diane DeWitt for a time in the early 1990s as co-owners, I think probably that didn't work out because DK was used to calling the shots and didn't exactly take very well to sharing that responsibility with somebody else. DK eventually sold his team to Doug Bobble, which began his run in the sport. DK went to Daytona the next year after selling the team, and you and I both know what it's like to be at the racetrack without anything to do. But for DK, as strange as it was for him to be there without a team, he also didn't have a tire bill. Which makes a great big difference when you go down there and you don't have to pay for anything for a race team. So what does DK do? He goes out, he gets himself a can of spray paint, and he draws himself a circle on the ground near the NASCAR hauler, and he labels it DK spot. <laughs> so he always had something to go back to. <laughs> Steve, there might be something in that. Me and you ought to try that. Now, if I tried it, they'd just arrest me for defacing property. Well, if I tried it, yeah, pretty much the same thing. But I can tell you this, DK spot, if it was near the NASCAR hauler, is not there <laughs> anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Taking the checkered flag and driving to victory lane is the goal for any racer. It tells the competition, my accomplishments resulted in a trip to the winner's circle. It's no different as a business owner, team leader, or coach. Recognizing those deserving is what we do every day at Five Star Awards and Engraving. Hi, race fans. This is Bob Laird, director of sales at Five Star and former Jackman for Buddy Arrington back in the 80s. Laser engraved and full-color corporate awards, as well as crystal, plaques, trophies, and promotional products are just some of a sample of what we offer at Five Star. With state-of-the-art equipment in our North Carolina facility, let our experienced graphic artists take you from idea to concept and ultimately the finish line. To view our beautiful and unique designs, please visit us at fivestarawards.net. The entire project can be completed online. Please reach out to me at bob.laird at fivestarawards.net. 919-954-1130. As a thank you, everyone who contacts me will receive at no charge a collection of NASCAR memorabilia featuring Richard Petty while supplies last. That's bob.laird at fivestarawards.net, 919-954-1130. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. The May 29th, 1986 issue of Grand National Scene. The race lead was written by some guy by the name of Steve Wade. And this race lead said it all when it came to that year's edition of the sport's longest race. I know what you read. Old Steve Wade wrote it. Sure. It's going to say it all. Ha ha ha. Your race lead said. Dale Earnhardt usually wins races by attacking a speedway like a bull. But in the Coca-Cola 600 at Charlotte Motor Speedway, he was more like a crafty fox. Such prose, Steve. Such prose. What can I say? It's an honor just to read it, sir. <laughs> Don't lay it on too thick, Rick. <laughs> Dale was content to stay behind Bill until Bill had to pit for fuel 16 laps from the checkered flag and 
Dale then eased out to a 1.59 second victory over Tim Richmond. 15 drivers, which was a record at the time for Charlotte, swapped the lead 38 times in this event, but Dale really wasn't a factor in this event until after his final pit stop on lap 336. Dale said, we made a good stop the last time. We filled the car up with gas and we knew that Bill had to make one more stop. Still, I kept the car loaded and ready. I wasn't playing with Bill, but I was content to run behind him. I didn't pressure the car. I was saving it and the tires, and I felt I had enough left to get by Bill at the end if I had to. Bill wound up finishing sixth, the last car on the lead lap, and he said, we just had to stop for fuel. If we hadn't, we would have been out of gas, and we ran out twice in the race as it was. Our problem was that we kept the burn piston from the Talladega race in our mind and we jetted the engine a little richer than we usually would here. We sacrificed a little more horsepower for a little more conservative engine, which we hoped would run all the way. We needed a yellow flag there in the last 30 laps or so, and I think we would have made life very interesting for those who finished ahead of us at the end. Well, as it turned out, the start of this race, Dale was just basically lumbering around the track. The only thing that kept him from going a lap down was good pit stops from his crew and good gas mileage. So he decided to take advantage of that. And just like he said, he bided his time until he knew Bill would have to make that race-ending stop for gas, and he took advantage of that. That was the difference. Richard Petty started the race in a car owned by DK Ulrich. After Richard crashed in turn three during a practice session three days before the 600. Now, I had a question about that. Why wouldn't Richard's crew have pulled the backup car off the trailer? Here's what I was told in a text exchange with my anonymous source. Richard did have a backup there at the racetrack, but he wasn't eligible to use that backup because he never qualified the number 43 for the race. He crashed before first round qualifying, so he couldn't use the backup. You had to make a qualifying attempt in order to use the backup. I am sure that a lot of people have seen the pictures of Richard with DK's car before the start of the race, and it looks so out of place with the green car, the white hood, the big number six on the doors and the roof, and the STP decals all over this green car. And they see the smile on Richard's face in the photo of him, but the wreck in practice was pretty serious. There was some fire, and Richard sustained not only a bruised leg, but also a concussion. The car rolled through the turn and came to a rest on the grassy part of the front stretch opposite the entrance to the garage. Kyle, his son, was standing nearby clocking cars and ran to his dad's car and tried pulling him out. And Steve Kyle said that Richard didn't know where he was, what time it was, or why he was in Charlotte. That is terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Richard was back at the track the next day and told reporters, when I woke up in the infield hospital, I didn't know where I was. I saw Kyle and Del Inman, and I asked them where I was. They said, Charlotte. Dell asked me if I remembered driving at Dover last week, and I couldn't. 
Then I asked what year it was. After a while, things started coming back. I remembered racing down pit road behind the number 25 car, meaning Tim Richmond. Then I remembered going into the third turn and the car pushing toward the wall. I turned and turned, but it kept going. And I thought this is going to hurt. I'm going to go on the record here and say this. Thank God the mindset of drivers has changed in the last 36 years. And thank God the mindset of professional sports has changed. Richard would have never been allowed today to get back in a car at the racetrack. He would have had to undergo a concussion protocol. And that takes time. He would have to have been cleared by doctors after thorough examinations, which sometimes takes days to be allowed to race again. That is a big difference from what happened to him back in 1986. I might add that all of professional sports follows a concussion protocol this day, not just NASCAR, all professional sports. And that is a very good thing. There is a lot of talk today about safety. And a lot of people have a lot of things to say about the next gen car and it being really stiff and the drivers feeling the impacts yeah, a lot more than what they have. I don't know what the answer is. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a safety expert. All I know is this. We cannot go back to a day when a driver can't remember where he was, what he was doing, what year it was. He can't remember what happened last week. We can't go back to a time like that and him even start a car. No, absolutely not. Again, I'm going to say this. I cannot stand Somebody saying back when real men were driving these cars and they didn't need all that safety crap and yeah, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Don't go down that road with me because if drivers like Dale Earnhardt had worn the Hans device or if safer barriers had been in place, Dale might very well still be with us. Sure. I agree with 100%, Rick. I mean, I'm really thinking the number of fans who still express that particular opinion is shrinking. Common sense has taken place. This was the 997th start of Richard Petty's career and his 433rd in a row going all the way back to 1971. Now, chasing a milestone is one thing. There was a lot of attention being paid to the fact that he was very quickly going to reach a thousand starts. And I'm sure that he wanted to keep that consecutive streak alive, but chasing a milestone ain't worth sacrificing your health. I don't want anybody to think that I'm criticizing Richard Petty specifically because Richard Petty was absolutely positively without reservation, not the only person with that kind of mindset where they have to get back in the car and damn the consequences. Everybody had that mindset. Uh, they got back in the car with bones sticking out of their skin. <laughs> okay. Maybe it wasn't that bad, but that's the mindset that they had. They had to be back in that race car. Well, I agree with you. When you say Richard wasn't the only one, you're 100% right. I mean, guys like Davey Allison, Ricky Rudd, oh my gosh. You yeah. remember Ricky Rudd after Daytona? Yeah. 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 What a mess. But those guys are convinced that they have to get back into the race car. Now, not only does NASCAR have the concussion protocol today, it has other means by which it uses to make the drivers safer and not come back too early. In other words, you can be banged up in a whole lot of different ways 
and not have a concussion. And NASCAR still isn't going to let you back in the car. And I'll conclude with this. I just have to wonder how many races Richard Petty would have won in his career if he hadn't driven so completely beaten to a pulp so many times. Uh, Rick, we will never know. We'll never know. One of the three photo bios in this issue is on J.D. McDuffie. And where it asked about his personal vehicles, J.D. said that he had a 1979 Chevrolet Malibu, a 1978 pickup truck, and a 1971 Chevrolet truck that he used as his race car hauler. 1971, and this is 1986. Yes. I can't wait to hear what happens next, Rick. J.D. noted in this photo bio that that truck that he used as his car hauler had 750,000 miles on it. (laughs) I can believe it, really. That is enough to make a round trip to the moon and back (laughs) and then go back to the moon. (laughs) (laughs) That's what J.D. had to do, though. As we know, he never had the money to get a new truck every other year. There was another short news story in this issue about Harry Gant filming a bit part in another How Nita movie, and the name of this flick was Body Slam. (laughs) And it starred Dirk Benedict of A-Team fame and wrestling superstar Rowdy Roddy Popper. (laughs) (laughs) Now there is a cast. Harry said, my big scene takes about 10 seconds, but it took about three hours to do. It's fun to go out there with Hal and do a little bit in his movies, but I would never want to do it for a living. Actors work a lot harder than we do. (laughs) Actually, Harry was in Stroke Race. Now that performance and that movie are Oscar worthy. I don't know about that, but a whole lot better than Body Slam. <laughs> hey, race fans. John Dodson here from NASCAR Technical Institute. NASCAR Tech is open and enrolling with classes starting every three to six weeks. In our 48-week automotive technology program, Students learn everything from vehicle electronic technology to diagnostics and drivability. And as our exclusive educational provider for NASCAR, we offer a 15-week NASCAR elective where students learn engines, fabrication, aerodynamics, pit crew essentials, and more. NASCAR Tech also offers 36-week welding and CNC machining training programs so you can choose the path that best fits your career goals. Ready to see how you can get started? Visit uti.edu slash NASCAR today. NASCAR Technical Institute prepares graduates to work as entry-level automotive service technicians. Some graduates who take NASCAR-specific electives also may have job opportunities in racing-related industries. NASCAR Tech is an educational institution and cannot guarantee employment or salary. Hi, this is Morgan Shepard. Hi, this is Tommy Houston. Hi, I'm Jeff Purvis. Hello, this is Tim Brewer. Hey, I'm D.K. Ullrich, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey, 
Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens. And if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports. So whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. This podcast has been brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. Before we conclude this week, Steve, I wanted to talk about something that took place on social media last week on Twitter. In last week's installment of the interview with DK Ulrich, he mentioned seeing Tim Richmond shoot up with something. You and I discussed it. You said that you didn't think that that would be characteristic of him because he was afraid of needles and so on and so forth. That being said, a lady on Twitter said that she was there and she was in the limo with Tim and DK and Bob Seger. And she never saw anything like that. And she apparently was pretty upset that we had reported such a thing or that we had included such a thing in our podcast. I never got the chance to meet Tim. All I know about Tim is what I've been told, the good and the bad. Whether or not he actually shot up, I don't know. Let's remember, this was DK's podcast. We didn't say anything about Tim shooting up. He did. And he's entitled to his opinion. And he says he was there. That's fine. But at the same time, Rick, I did know Tim Richmond. And Tim Richmond had his detractors. But he had many more supporters and fans to this day but he was no saint now let's not argue about that he was no saint but what he was what he is most remembered as was a vastly talented race driver well at the end of the day it's your responsibility and it's my responsibility as motorsports journalists and as the host of this podcast we can only present the story that we are told correct I think it's very important not to whitewash anybody's story. That's also correct. The very same way that I also believe that you shouldn't just focus on the salacious details, him shooting up and all the women that he was with and, of course, the AIDS and everything. All we can do is report what we are told and let the listeners and the YouTube viewers decide for themselves what they believe. That is exactly what we've been doing, Rick. And we don't try to censor anybody, as you well know. We let them speak and let the listeners make their own opinions of what they say. It is heck getting older, ain't it? Tell me about it. <laughs> oh. All right. You ready? Yeah. All right. Let's go. We better hurry. It's almost my nap time. <laughs> <laughs> Ha, <laughs> <laughs> 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.